Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the only association for those with a professional interest in neuromarketing. Visit www.nmsba.com for events and membership details. And Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Email pmcgee at decisionbreakers.com to see how they can help you win your war in-store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and inside professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and I'm speaking today with Tim Rutledge, co-founder of CX Lab and someone who is fascinated by neuroscience and how it can benefit business. Tim had a very successful career in advertising and now focuses on understanding the human experience and applies it to developing practical commercial solutions in the real world. He recently co-authored his first academic paper, Reviewing the Use of Biometric Tools to Investigate Consumer Behavior, a paper that was chosen as one of the most relevant in its field by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, and will be one of the two things we'll discuss today. And that's because just a couple of weeks ago, I saw Tim give a really great presentation on tripping points last week at the Shopper Brain Conference in Amsterdam. And I'd like to discuss that as well. But before we get into all that, Tim, welcome to Shoppernomics. Thank you, Phil. Great to be here. Terrific. And it's great you could join us. Um, Tim, why don't you start by taking a minute, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Sure, Phil. Um, Just saying hi to everyone, really. Um, Yeah, as Phil said, my name is Tim Routledge. Um, I spend my time trying to apply science to human experience, um, particularly consumer experience, but also employee experience as well. Um, But trying to use the the science of psychology, neuroscience and behavioral economics to really understand um, human behavior, what makes people do things and how we might influence that behavior positively for businesses, for product services and brands. Um, I also wanted to say, Phil, that I'm a big basketball fan because I know something that goes down well in the States, uh, very unusual to find someone from the UK that's big into basketball. so I just wanted to make that point. <laughs> well, that, that, now, that's interesting because at the conference, you told me that your daughter is a, a swimmer um, on a scholarship to, was it Vassar? Uh, it's actually to Villanova. Which oh, Villanova. Is, I'm sorry. Which, obviously, um, NCAA champions twice in the last three years. Yeah. Which is, uh, was a big deal for me. And that's not the reason that she went there. And uh, she's not a big basketball Well, she's more of a basketball fan now than she was. But uh, it was very exciting to me to find that she was going to such a – uh, basketball um, <laughs> heavy university and it was great that their results have, have come in, in, in recently. Wow, that's cool. So you guys had, there are athletic genes that run in your family, obviously. <laughs> I think she got them. I'm not sure I got them all. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, terrific. Well, as I mentioned in my introduction, there's two topics that, uh, that we're going to talk about today. And I thought we'd start with your paper, um, which you titled Beyond Self-Report a review of physiological and neuroscientific methods to investigate consumer behavior. Now, it it sounds a bit complicated and perhaps intimidating, but it's actually, I thought, quite easy to read and understand. And and this paper caught my attention because, you know, these methods are becoming much more popular for shopper and consumer insights and can be a really useful resource. That is, your paper can be a, a really useful resource 
for those who want to know more about them, including their strengths and limitations, and, sure. and, and just to have on hand when considering using these methods for their learning plans. So, um, so to begin, I, I, you know, I'm really curious, um, as, I am, as I am with, with all the interviews I conduct, uh, and especially when you take on a topic and a paper as, as comprehensive as this, what inspired you to write this paper? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And um, yeah, apologies for the bit of the mouthful of the title there. Um, <laughs> as the, I wanted it just to say beyond self-report, but uh, my collaborators, much uh, more scientific than me, uh, added the second bit <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, it had a broader appeal. Yeah. But, but really where this came from, uh, Phil, is this idea that a bunch of years ago, almost 10 years ago now, I began to realize that conventional methods for investigating uh, how people did things, for how consumers behaved, uh, self-report, which is the accepted method, just wasn't really cutting it in terms of getting to the truth about why people did things. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time, the last 10 years, trying to develop new tools to help us dig into uh, that behavior. And in fact, those tools already exist and, and they exist out there in the scientific world. And it's long been my ambition to be able to, I guess, bring a paper together that summarizes all those different tools in a way which um, people can understand and, and therefore people can apply. And, and thank you very much for saying that you felt it was easy to read because often scientific papers aren't, as we know. And our objective was to make something that people could look at and say, yeah, I can read this and I can learn something from it, which is of value to me. Yes, and, and you know, it, it may have been easy to read and understand because I've used a lot of those methods before. Sure. Um, you know, fMRI, EEG, pupillometry, facial recognition, and, and pretty much everything that you covered. But, but to, to that point, um, in fact, let's, let's define the scope of your paper. Uh, tell us what are physiological and neuroscientific methods and what can researchers expect to learn from them that they may not get from traditional methods? Yes. Okay. So um, when we talk about, and I guess there are two types of methodologies there, physiological and neuroscientific. And if I try and sort of define those broadly, that might help. Yeah. Um, so by physiological, we talk about ways of monitoring uh, the body's internal systems. And specifically, that are things like heart rate, skin temperature, uh, muscle movement, eye tracking, where sensors are fitted to uh, someone's body in order to monitor those uh, those responses. Now, that's different from neuroscientific methods, which are all about monitoring activity in the brain itself. Right. So that would be uh, EEG, uh, I think you mentioned fMRI, and something else called FNIRS, which is uh, also ways of monitoring activity in the brain directly. So what we're measuring with the physiological measures are um, unconscious signals, if you like, from, from the body, um, rather than anything that's been filtered as a conscious response to something, as in if I ask you a question, you have to think about it in order to answer, whether that's verbalizing or writing an answer or doing a survey or that kind of thing. So, you know, my contention is, and, and I, I appreciate it's a relatively controversial one, is that asking people questions just doesn't get to the whole story. Um, because so much of our behavior is influenced by the unconscious. And I think Phil and I, uh, you and I would have seen at the Shopper conference, people talking about 90%, even 95% of decision-making being influenced unconsciously. Asking people conscious questions about what they did or what they do 
um, just can't work. Right. And I'd like to sort of put an analogy out there, if that's all right with you here, which is this idea of um, it's a bit like a detective investigating a crime. And before we had kind of mainstream forensic science, uh, all detectives had in order to interrogate kind of suspects and find out who'd done what was kind of clever methodologies of interviewing to try and kind of get people to slip up and give give away their guilt. Right. And now, just as, as we've got forensics in uh, in policing, we've now got science in uh, marketing, which allows us to use biometrics to go beyond what people say and to try and find out the true influences on their behaviour. So it's it's very much like we like to think of ourselves as doing this kind of forensic investigation of experience in order to get to what's really influencing people rather than what they might necessarily tell us consciously. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And, right. and, and um, you know, Kahneman and others have used the terms system one and system two. These terms have found their way into researchers' vernacular. And, you know, at kind of a high level, you can say that these things are really after the, the system one type of understanding and insights, um, things that really aren't generally articulated um, by people in, in an explicit way. Um, yeah. these, these are more tapping the implicit mind. Yeah, and I'd possibly go a bit further than that. We might, we might do that, I guess, when we get into the bulk of the paper, indeed some of our theor- theoretical applications of the things that are in the paper later on, when yeah. uh, this idea that um, system one is something that we can't tap into from a system two perspective, so we can't consciously know what our unconscious is doing. That might get a bit. <laughs> we might get a bit lost in that, but um, but you know that's kind of part of our our idea about the whole thing. Yes. So as you kind of talked about these methods, there is quite a list of them, right? Yes. And, and <laughs> any reader will will quickly pick that up as they're going through. And and by the way, I really liked how you you took to it like one methodology at a time, and so that that's in large part what made it readable. I think for me is that. You know, when you're talking about EEG, you weren't kind of jumping around between that and, and pupillometry and FNIRs and, and, and you know, fMRI and whatnot. You know, you, you kind of dove deep on EEG and then kind of took us through it, how it works, what it is, what you can learn, and things of that nature. And, and so um, not only did it make it easy to read, but it also made it a really simple-to-use desk reference. But let's say, you know, you're kind of new at this and you read the paper – and, and now you've got a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a foundational understanding of how these work. How would you know which of these methods is best for your particular situation? You know, you've, got a, you've got a business question or a research question, and now you've got this new set of tools for your research toolbox. How do you know which tool to use? Uh, that's a great, great question, uh, Phil. I, I think because this idea of a toolbox is a nice way of imagining it, and I think that a lot of people will see a very exciting, gleaming toolbox with some very complicated things in it. And just as you've articulated, how would we apply that to, to what my problem is? And I guess I'm sort of going to say it depends, and I apologise for that, because it is it is sort of horses for courses um, and is dictated really by what you're trying to find out. Having said that, I think there are two big factors, major factors that I think that people should consider. Um and one of those is this idea of something called ecological validity. 
how valid is the uh, technique you're trying to use in the real world? How close to the real world can you get in order to understand how people are behaving? Now, clearly some methods, and you've, we've mentioned and talked a little bit about fMRI, are clearly only lab-based because the, well, currently anyway, <laughs> because the tools that people are using are large scanners, very heavy devices, which have to be based in a lab. And, and people have to be in a unique situation to be able to be studied by them. So anything that's kind of like that or invo involves what I would call obtrusive measurement, where someone is wearing a skull cap or, and even in some cases, things like eye tracking glasses, introduces a kind of variable in the real world. If you put someone in a real world situation, which might affect A, their behavior, but B, the behavior of other people who interact with them. Um, so if you're studying these real world interactions, you need to think about how can you make things uh, unobtrusive? And how can you make it so that people can behave as they normally would? And and the second big thing to think about is probably cost, <laughs> because running um, an fMRI study is very expensive uh, and takes a lot of time. So that's something else that people ought to be thinking about is, what do I want to do and what can I afford in order to try and find out some of these unconscious things which I wouldn't do otherwise? Because I think we have to face up to the fact that one of the problems with the area that I'm involved in, in um, using kind of physiological measurement, is that it's much, much more difficult than asking someone, what did you just do? What did you just think? Yes. Although obviously I would argue it's hugely more valid because you can do something with it rather than just um, guess on the result. So, you know, I, I liked how you talked about there are practical considerations, right? So, you know, if you use the fMRI, um, kind of the big gigantic magnet that people get inserted to, like a cigar in a cigar case, yeah. um, you know, you're not going to, you know, if, if you're trying to understand how shoppers make decisions when they're shopping, that's not a very practical um, application. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, it's, I, I go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that's, for, for me, what we've found in dealing with, with clients in the real world is that people often look at those kind of extreme ends of the neuroscientific measurement and say, how can that be applicable to me? It, just as you've just right. just said, Phil, how, how is that relevant? And and I would, I would have to agree with them. And I'd say we need, and that's our big thing in our business, is to try and get as close to reality as possible because i think we have more opportunity there and more chance of finding out what's really influencing people in those real situations oh yeah i can't agree with you more i mean you know we we all understand the importance of context and and when you remove yeah. layers of context to kind of force a way to use some of these tools um you know you're going to make some sacrifices and i guess um you know you answered the question really well of you know how do i know which is best for my particular situation and, and there are a lot of considerations, and, and all of those considerations involve, you know, a, a, a trade-off of one form or another, right? Indeed. There, there's yeah. cost, there's complexity, and there's, you know, obviously context. Very important to really kind of understand as you're considering these different methods, all of those things. So kind of having an introductory level of understanding, in my opinion, really isn't enough. Um, and so it takes some, it, it takes, you know, a modest amount of education to at least know enough to know what you're looking for and, and how to make the right trade-offs for you. 
I completely agree with you. I think that's that's really nicely put. That you have to be you have to be someone who who kind of understands a little bit about what you're trying what you're trying to do and how to decipher the things that are going to come out of it in order to be able to use it um, relevantly um, for your particular business. Exactly. Now, what I like about these methods is that while they may be new to us, those of us who do not come from a scientific background, um, those of us who are, you know, working as shopper insight people or marketers uh, or consumer insight folks, um, they may be new to us, but these are not new to the scientific community. I mean, these things have been used for literally decades, mm. and, and the science um, has really evolved to a state of, of being quite advanced. Um, but it is fairly new in its application to marketing and marketing research. Is, is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's, that is absolutely fair to say. Because I, I guess like with all these things, um, science develops in, in its own kind of world. And then, and I guess what we're talking about today, how do you practically apply that um, in a different kind of world, which is the world of commerce and business? Yes. And, and so thinking about the application for for these, these kind of new new ways of, you know, for marketing, marketing research, um, it, it seems that each of these methods have their own strengths and weaknesses, which, which you cover in detail. Um, but in your opinion, is, there, is, is one of these more, let's say, stable or reliable than others? And as a researcher, um, you might default to that method before considering one of the others? Or do the pluses and minuses cancel each other out and it's more about choosing the right one versus the best one? Yeah, and you're asking some great questions, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> Testing Thank you. here. Excellent. <laughs> that. Um, we, because I think, as I mentioned before, what we think is most important is to be um, in the real world with real people in real time. And therefore, we tend to default to measures which we know are very reliable and very stable and things which we can disguise so that they are uh, the least obtrusive, so as unobtrusive as possible. And, and so I would always default to heart rate and electrodermal activity. So measuring uh, someone's heart rate and indeed their heart rate variability from their heart rate, mm -hmm. but also measuring electrodermal activity, which is the amount of sweat on somebody's skin literally um which is uh which gets larger as you get more aroused as you get more emotionally involved in something as you uh are engaged further so uh, that's the kind of two measures we use and we do use both of them so we do not ever use a measure on its own and i think that's something also that i'd like to stress yeah. to your listeners is very important um because it's the relationship between some of those two measures often and indeed the stimuli which has caused them, which is critical in understanding um, how that has influenced someone's behavior. And certainly to try and form kind of correlations between them and to start hypothesizing on causes um, as, to, as to what might have caused them. Um, and clearly it's all about the particular study, as, as you mentioned before, but those two measures I would always use. Um, and again, I think also, as we, we mentioned before, but to, to, to you know, hammer the point home, and apologies if I am making it too strongly, but context is king. You have to be able to, um, to know and synchronize these measures with stimuli that are occurring in the real world. Because if you don't know 
what's caused something, then you're only ever going to be guessing. You can't just look at the data and see it. You need to know cause and effect. Um, so we use uh, video monitoring and audio monitoring via cameras, either on people or remotely monitoring people. Okay. Uh, we use ethnographic tracking. So we follow people covertly or overtly to see what they're doing so that we can start to look really at um, the relationship between the data that we're seeing in people's physiology, their responses to situations, and, and what is triggering those things? What is causing um, the tripping point, as you mentioned before, Phil? Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, great answer, first of all. And thanks for actually being bold enough to have an answer and not just uh, <laughs> not just taking a pass on it with an easy answer like, uh, yeah, you know, you can use all of them and they're all just as good as the other. Um, and, and I did ask for your opinion and, and that, that is your opinion. Um, and, and thanks for, thanks for offering it. Cause, um, I, I'm, by the way, I agree with you. I think those are very, very practical and there is a lot of experience with those methods for these applications, but you also mentioned the importance of using multiple methods. And I think that is an important point to bring out because very rarely do I see practitioners taking kind of one method and using only that one method without pairing it with something else because a lot of these tools do bring their own highly specialized understanding of the way people think and process information and by themselves it's, it tends to be incomplete. And so it helps to have you know kind of a partner or multiple partner methods uh, including traditional methods, by the way, not not just um, stacking uh, these neurophysiological methods on top of each other, but it's really the combination of these things that uh, that really get us to the better place. I uh, wholeheartedly um, support you there. Al although I might take, uh, forgive me, slight issue with the use of conventional methods. If by conventional you you mean asking people questions, because uh, the reason I like asking people questions is only to compare and contrast what they say with the physiological data. Because one of the things we we constantly find is that people don't know why they do things. Mm -hmm. And asking them is, is interesting because sometimes we can, um, well, nearly always, we find that what they say and what they've done are two very, very different things. That is true. And I guess when I say that, I am referring to explicitly given information, uh, verbally expressed, but I'm also kind of making the assumption as I say that, that these questions are worded and asked in a way which removes bias, they're looking for things that can be recalled by, uh, by consumers. You mentioned, for example, ethnography, right? So that's not a neural or physiological methodology. Sure. Uh, it is what I would consider a traditional or conventional uh, method that when combined with some of these tools can be extremely effective at, at, at getting you um, a clearer picture of, of what you're trying to understand. Uh, agreed, agreed, and and we're certainly not going to fall out over it, Phil. That's for sure. <laughs> but, but I also just wanted to make the point that um, there are certainly it's certainly true to say that the way that um, a lot of conventional research is carried out could be improved in terms of making it um, more interesting for people in terms of results. But also, there's there's the applicability of what's interesting about what people do remember from experiences is in itself interesting, especially when it's at odds with what really happened. 
because memories, as we know, are the things that can drive future behavior, even though they may not be related to what people actually did. So that's my interest is is how those things are indeed different. Um, And understanding that can, again, help us to influence behavior going forward. I'm thinking here, sorry, Phil, of Kahneman's idea of of the the peak, his peak end theory, yes. where the idea that people remember and experience only the, the main part of it, the peak part of it, mm-hmm. and so the end of it. And therefore, that's what they tend to talk about. And I guess what we're trying to do is fill all the bits in in between, yeah. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Good distinction. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. And so at the end of the paper, you mentioned that there are concerns about the generalizability of the findings from these methods and their ability to identify causal mechanisms underlying consumer behaviors. Uh, can you yeah. tell us about these concerns? And in your opinion, do they outweigh the benefit of using these methods? Um, I think it is a, a genuine concern. And I guess here we're getting into the difference between science versus market research. Yeah. Um, I think often we find in, in the commercial world that um, the results we get are very unique to a sector, a brand, or a product or a service, um, and therefore can't be applied more generally. And that's because obviously the kind of investigations we're doing in the real world have a lot of variables that we we can't control in the way that a scientist would. Now, I think in a way this is a strength for clients because it means the data is unique to them Mm -hmm. and therefore potentially may offer some commercial advantage over a rival product or indeed um, a rival brand. Whereas in science, where you can control in a lab way all the variables, it makes it easy for you to draw more general conclusions about things because you are um, you've controlled all those variables. Right. So so it's difficult often for the stuff we do to be re- replicable elsewhere simply because of the the range of variables that are, that are happening. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't outweigh the benefits, and obviously you would expect me to say that, um, <laughs> but. Scientists, but researchers and clients, you know, should definitely be aware that, uh, or beware, drawing sweeping conclusions that could be more widely applied. Um, the truth is, we just can't apply the kind of rigor that science demands in terms of uh, publishing papers, trying to move science forward, because in real world experiences, we just don't have that level of control. Um, and often, and it's worth pointing out, we. Because we want to get as close to the real behavior as possible, we sometimes have to do things that science would kind of frown upon, which is often misdirecting kind of participants in our research in order to minimize the bias. So we don't want them to have a preset view about what might happen. So we might kind of aim off, if you like, actually kind of slightly mislead them so that we can see what really happens with it when they encounter that situation. Now, in science, most ethics committees would never allow you to do something like that. And so it makes it harder that your paper is going to get published or even reviewed, to be honest. Um, And and so so that's my concern about this, the the generalizability about what we do is that I think what we can do is shine a light on something very particular and possibly that gives scientists some opportunities to look at something in a bit more detail down the line. But because, again, uh, you know, this is a commercial organization that, that I'm obviously involved in, we want to demonstrate um, the effect, the Im- impact on business, on shopper behavior, on consumer behavior. Um, and again, we're less concerned about how 
generalizable the results might be, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it, it goes back to what we talked about before about, you know, context matters, right? For sure. And so, sure. you know, it's, it's generalizable um, to the extent that you're operating in the same context that you were when you, you know, perform the experiment. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of hard, right? Especially when you're talking about, so, you know, I'm, I have a bias toward shopper insights. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of thinking about, all right, there's a shopper in the store and they're walking down the aisle with their cart. Um, and, you know, one store from another is, is going to, you know, create a very different experience. You've got different lighting, you've got different ambient noises, you've got different um, widths, you've got different quality shopping carts, you know. Some carts are always trying to pull you to the right, you know, and that's distracting. Um, You've got different assortment philosophies. You've got different pricing philosophies and promotion philosophies. Um, And so, you know, each of those things are, are, are variables, and there are, you know, thousands and thousands more variables that you can't control for. And so you're, you know, you're doing this research knowing that and trying to get generalized learning uh, to the extent possible, but you have to appreciate that it's, it's not always transferable. You, we, we often may read, you know, an academic paper that talks about something that happened, you know, for example, in the cereal aisle. And, and you can't just necessarily take what they learn in the cereal aisle and apply it to your situation, you know, in the, in the toothpaste aisle, right? And so, you know, again, back, back to the importance of context. So beyond the methods themselves, it's also just designing a good study and, and making yeah. sure that, you know, you, you control what you can control, but you also, you know, use uh, carefully what you learn when applying it beyond the environment in which you learned it. Again, I think that's absolutely right, Phil, that, that, that is about, you know, you do what you can do in the circumstances that you have. Yeah. And your use of the word transferable is, is a very good word, I think, which is it, rather than generalize, generalizability, it's about this transferable. What can I find out that I can use to help me influence um, other shoppers, other consumers in other areas? Yeah. And But I have to test that. I can't just make an assumption that it will be a general truth that will transfer across. Right, 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 right. Um, you know, it, of course, helps if you have confirming data points that say, hey, this does work under multiple contexts. You know, I saw it in, a, in an academic paper and it happened to agree with the study I just performed. Um, you know, and, and my experience in other categories kind of showed that it, it works there too. Therefore, I can more safely assume that there's a generalized learning. Um, but kind of until you have those confirming data points, um, best to assume that maybe you don't. Okay, yeah. So, you know, as, as I thought about our discussion, uh, and before I saw your Shopper Brain presentation, um, my intention was to go deep uh, in, into your paper and kind of take each of the methods and go one by one and talk about, well, you know, how, how does this work and, and what are the strengths and limitations and so on. But, um, but I think it actually, I, I would just encourage people to read your paper um, I'll give the title once again so people can, can Google it. Uh, it's called Beyond Self-Report, A Review of Physiological and Neuroscientific Methods to Investigate Consumer Behavior. And then people, people could have it, they can read it, and they can use it as that desk reference. 
because I, I do want to have time to talk about your, your Shopper Brain presentation. But just to kind of wrap up this first part, um, Tim, and before we move on, is there anything else that you wanted to mention on this topic that we didn't already discuss that people should know about? Um, I think I just would like to emphasize one thing, if that's all right, Phil. Sure. Is it's just, this again, this idea about using real people in the real world in real time to be able to generate what I, I would call real data that has this practical application for businesses. And I think we've talked about it a little bit, but it's all about what what can I do with it? What can I, as a business person, do with this data that makes a difference to my to my business? Um, so, so we're always trying to get as close to actual commercial behaviour uh, as we possibly can, and, and that sometimes means well, always means using kind of very smart experimental design and also some kind of control um, and a hypothesis that you start off with mm. that means that you've got something to test. And so rather than just randomly looking in the field and hoping to find something that we can make some observations and think, this is our hypothesis. Let's see how we can test it and let's introduce some element of control. Um, and I think the other thing that what science does teach business is that you can't take the results as final. You have to use them as indicative of something um, and therefore use additional research. And, and often that means more quantitative research to test the findings in a, in a very practical way and how they are influencing behavior. Are they making people buy more things? Are they making people spend more money? Those kind of very practical KPIs that businesses obviously live or die by. And the other thing I would just want to say is that you have to be prepared to be proved wrong <laughs> because that's what science teaches you. And sometimes you don't get it right and you have to go back and reinvestigate. And I spent a lot of time in my career um, convincing, trying to convince people that actually we've we haven't got the answer yet and we need to go back and look back into the data. Um, often businesses, businesses don't have the time or indeed the desire to do that. But that's a critical part of science, of closing a door so that you know not to waste your time going down that route again. But because at the end of the day, you know, we are a business that's got to prove to clients that we can deliver return on investment. So it must be a practical tool for improving business KPIs or I don't know why as a business you would use it. Yeah, good point. And yeah, and, and your presentation that we're about to talk about, you do talk about this as a process, right? This tends not to be a single um, you know, episode or a single step. This is a multi-step process. And, uh, you know, w when and where appropriate um, in part two of this conversation, feel free to talk about that process. Sure. And so, so let's talk about that. Um, it, it was a, a, a uh, presentation which you titled, how tripping points can help us understand and influence shopper behavior. Um, and actually, and, and I hope you don't mind, but, but I have to tell listeners the story of what happened at the conference. Um, if, is that all right? Yeah, sure. Okay. So shortly before I was going to introduce Tim, um, he came up to me and he said, don't be alarmed, but when I walk on stage, I'm going to trip. Now, what Tim didn't know is that there was a typo in his int introduction. So instead of saying, tripping points, I said tipping points, as in Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. So, so poor Tim, he, he comes to the stage and, and he trips as he walks on stage, and instead of laughing, as the audience would have if they knew it was a joke, which it was intended to be, obviously, um, they instead expelled a huge gasp. <laughs> but, um, but you know, Tim, yes, I spoiled your joke. I, no, no. <laughs> I, I feel terrible about that. Um, but at the same time, I may have helped you by setting you up uh, to benefit from the pratfall effect. 
which, uh, which is something I learned at last year's Shopper Brain Conference. That's uh, the Pratt-Fall effect is when, when we, we become more likable when we expose our flaws or imperfections. So, um, all right, so I spoiled your joke, but, but I made you more likable. So hopefully that's, uh, <laughs> but that's a fair trade-off. <laughs> I'd say on balance, that's, that works out fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right, well, thanks for letting me tell that story. Um, and, uh, but, but back to your presentation. You know, I, I really like the way that you set it up. By, by first talking about the brain as a prediction machine and how our two systems interact when predictions and reality don't match. Um, why don't you take us through that and how that works? Uh, yeah, so, sure, I, I can do that. So, so what I was trying to articulate um, was something that's called the kind of Bayesian theory of the brain, yeah. um, which is this idea that our brains have evolved as uh, sophisticated predicting machines, um, that is, we use our existing knowledge and experience of the world to create expectations about what's going to happen next. And that, this is on a millisecond by millisecond basis. Um, and, it, and it's a top-down process. So uh, depending on what we're trying to achieve, uh, what are our goals, we will predict how the world is going to react to our interaction with it. Um, and this checking is allocated to our system one, our unconscious response. It's what our senses report back. And what we find is if the reality of the, of the experience that we have matches our prediction, um, then we don't need to involve our very slow, complicated and expensive resource system too. We don't need to think about things. They just happen and the brain's happy and we just kind of carry on with things. Right. But the critical element is when, we, when something is wrong – as when I tripped up on the stage, <laughs> um, our senses generate something that neuroscientists call a prediction error and we call a tripping point, which is um, where system one, our unconscious, triggers this physiological response cascade that we can measure in the devices that we have. So heart rate, EDA, uh, EG, brain activity. It causes these changes. And that alerts system two to the fact that oh, we've got it wrong. Um, we need to update our prediction of the experience for next time. And, and this, in effect, is learning in action. Yeah. Now, now clearly, in 100,000, several hundred thousand years ago, when modern humans first uh, started making their mark on the world, it was far more dangerous. Uh, and therefore, the problems that they originally encountered were uh, far more likely to kill them, and therefore survival was uh, absolutely paramount. So accurate predictions, getting things right, were literally the difference between life and death. Um, so the system was built on speed. It had to be able to respond very, very far. And what this means is that it's, um, it, it's system one that's causing system two to get this kind of early warning about what's happening. Yeah. But there's no detail in it. It's just a very kind of crude and I think I talked about in the presentation, Phil, it's a binary system. It either matches or it doesn't, and that's it, mm -hmm. because we haven't got the time to kind of think about the detail of it. Right. So the why may not be um, known to us consciously, but certainly the fact that there was a problem will be. And so what we tend to do is post-rationalize on the reasons. We, we use our conscious brain to um, analyze the issue subsequently and, and kind of go all cognitive, if you like, and sort of think about it. But it's actually system one that's tripped the alarm and caused the problem. So it's much more instinctive in that regard. 
And then, then system two, the conscious, gets involved and starts to try and work out the reasons why. Um, and so what Bayesian theory says is that our brains are always seeking this thing called congruence, a condition of kind of balance, where expectation and prediction, predict, prediction matching are, are accurate. And this seems to be policed by our neurotransmitter systems. So dopamine is heavily implicated in this uh, in, in terms of setting expectations and checking that reality matches. And this obviously helps the brain in optimizing its resources. So those moments, those prediction errors, as I said, we call them tripping points, uh, more like because it's like an electrical circuit, this idea that they trip a switch and that makes us consciously aware that something isn't right. Does that kind of cover it? Oh, it sure does. Yeah. And, you know, Kahneman in his book uh, has a, a few really um, uh, standout examples. One is, you know, something to the effect of if you're walking down the street and you see a woman with a baby stroller and, and you look at the baby and it's wearing a top hat, um, that's going to be a tripping point, right? Because you're, sure. <laughs> you're, no prediction would ever come up with, you know, this baby may have a top hat. But if, but if you ever see a baby with a top hat after that, um, that may not be a tripping point. So like, like you said, it's, it is part of a learning process that's, that's evolutionarily engineered um, for the purposes of survival. Um, but, but now that we understand this, we can um, you know, really use our understanding of tripping points um, you know, to market effectively. So to that point, um, in your presentation, and just to dig a little deeper on tripping points, you said there are four components of tripping points. Uh, I think there were impact, uh, affect, causes, and fixing. Uh, can you can you talk about these components and what they represent? Uh, yeah, indeed. Um, and again, this is our attempt to 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 make the science of tripping points applicable um, to commercial and, and business situations. Yeah. Because in terms of impact, um, what we're able to see is 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 clearly in in a customer journey and a customer experience the moments where things go wrong. So the where and the when, if you like, about how these things occur and what stimuli was the person exposed to at the time when that tripping point occurred because our hypothesis would then be that one may have caused the other and it, how good was that in terms of the outcome that the person experienced right. um, and and tripping points can be some of them can be absolutely major you know we talk about slap in the face so something you know, seeing a baby with a top hat would be a pretty unusual thing to see in the first instance. And that would probably literally make you stop and stare. Of course. <laughs> but other tripping points are much more subtle and um, and small. Um, and again, we, our analogy there is like the annoyance of a dripping tap, mm -hmm. which occurs in the background and might go on and for a long, long time. But at some point, it kind of makes you snap. <laughs> and <laughs> it breaks into consciousness and says, I've got to do something about that. Right. Um, and so the cumulative effect of these small tripping points can be just the same as the big sort of slap in the face. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah. so Because they make people feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel that something's not right because your system one is nagging at you that something's not quite right um, and, and you need to do something about it. Yeah. And these moments could be um, something to do with the interaction you have with a member of staff in a store. They could be the environment that you find yourself in. Um, or, or they could be just the way that you're being um, dealt with 
within um, a particular uh, interaction mm-hmm. that, that makes you not feel right. So, so I guess that's that's about the impact, how it's affecting you. Okay. Um, and then in terms of affect, so what we found is that that people are affected in different ways by the same tripping point. That is, they they're both tripped up by, if you like, but they have a different response to it because they have a different tolerance of it. And some of those things will depend on their relationship with the product or the service. So you intuitively might feel this um, is that often existing customers are more forgiving of tripping points that occur with the product or service they interact with simply because they've invested more in it. So in that relationship, so therefore they're more willing to put up with things that go wrong. But sometimes we see the completely the reverse is true and that um, existing customers are less tolerant of tripping points than new customers, uh, especially if it's in a category where um, something is well established and uh, is supposed to be at a certain level where their expectations are very high. Uh, and that's the critical point. It's all about people's expectations and knowing them and knowing how they react is critical to understand um, how tripping points are affecting individual people. Um, I guess talk a bit about causes. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we're looking at kind of individual people's response to uh, a particular customer experience to find their tripping points. But we're also looking to layer that data on top of a, a group of other people so we can aggregate it out. And then we can start to make these kind of um, hypotheses about what might be causing uh, a tripping point, which everyone is experiencing to different degrees potentially, but they're all being tripped up by it. Mm. Um, you know, is it your staff? Is it the way that your staff are dressed? Is it what they're saying that's tripping people up? Um, is it your store environment or indeed your website that's making customers feel uncomfortable? Or is it the process that you're trying to put people through, which is not very smooth and therefore at odds with a customer's expectations? And this is that to emphasize that point about where observation is so important to be able to synchronize kind of stimulus and physiological response, because only then can you start to hypothesize a correlation between the two, as in what might be causing um, the people's somebody's reaction. Right. And then the last point is when you've taken all those things into consideration and and you have some hypotheses about what's causing the problems, it. Clearly, you need to do something about it because that's the practical application. It's no good us saying to a client, "Here's your problems." They want to know, you know, how are you going to do? How are you going to fix it? Right. So, um, what we are then about, and this is the, I think I talked about our business at the conference being, a, you know, what I call a pillar to post solution, which is we want to redesign experiences, taking into account where things go wrong, so that businesses can better achieve whatever their objectives are. Um, what behaviours do you want customers to demonstrate and therefore how can you influence them? Now, sometimes that means just eliminating tripping points. So if you get rid of them, by definition, the journey is a bit smoother. So you'll make it more likely that people will get from the start point to the end point. Right. It'll be more congruent. Yeah. But what we found, and, and as you won't be surprised to hear, is that there are some tripping points which you just can't get away um, from. They are part of the process. I'm thinking of signing finance documents, which is something we see all the time, which causes people a number of kind of tripping points. But but recognising that, that that is a point, 
you can do something about it. We talk about ameliorating the impact of tripping points where you can use members of staff and indeed environmental cues to um, to stop them from being so impactful on people. It's literally or metaphorically speaking, holding someone's hand while they go through that tripping point to make it more likely they come out on the other side not feeling so bad about it. Um, and the final thing we talk about is, is compensating for tripping points. So literally using pricing or promotions to compensating for the fact that tripping points are there. Mm. We've seen this quite a bit with um, the stripped down experience that you see in kind of discount supermarkets compared to their more expensive rivals. People are prepared to put up with tripping points and a poorer experience because they're paying less. It's this whole idea of kind of credit debit within the, the human brain. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I like, I like that idea of, of compensating. Just in your experience, what do you think is the better approach to fix or to compensate? Um, it, it almost seems to me that compensation would maybe be more expensive than fixing over the long term. But maybe you, you don't compensate when you have a choice to compensate or fix. You compensate when you can't fix it, and therefore you have to compensate. Yeah, that, that's true. And sometimes there's a balance to be struck between both of them. Because mm. um, one of the dangers of compensation is if you compensate um, on pricing without doing anything about the experience, yeah. you, you run the risk of starting a kind of an experience war, if you like, with a competitor who does a little bit more with their experience to make it a bit better for, for customers. And therefore they're drawn to that, even though their prices might be slightly more. Cause as we know, people are prepared to pay more for better experiences. And um, again, it, there's a, there's some subtle changes that you can make to different things, balancing um, compensation with elimination in terms of tripping points that, that achieves the right point. And that's the point that you made earlier, Phil, about you have to keep, this is a process because the world changes, you know, new competitors come in offering different experiences and different prices. Right. You have to be mindful of that and be prepared to respond because it is, it is in a way an experience war that we're trying to, to wage here and using intelligence from the science, from the physiology to, inf to, make, to inform us to make better decisions. Right. I remember when you were giving your presentation, I started saying to myself, this is all right. But you're talking about tripping points as, as, a, as a bad thing that, that need to be fixed or compensated. But and, – and like almost right before I raised my hand to ask you that, you, you just came out and said that sometimes you need to create tripping points. And, and I'm, a, I'm, God, I'm, I'm such a firm believer in this idea um, because that's, that's just trying to be uh, uh, you know, positively disrupt by by using tripping points um, as as a marketer to uh, unseat habits, you know that that maybe are are working against you, uh, habits or scripts and, and intuitive processes that you need to disrupt, and and you you know you try to do so in a in a positive way. Um, so it, rather than fixing something, you're actually trying to you know, break something and rebuild it. Um, you know that that it that it advantages you. Uh, you know, an example that comes to mind is, and I, I've, I've never done this myself, but I've, I've read about it in a couple of places, putting, you know, speed bumps in the grocery aisle um, to get shoppers to slow down and take notice of something that they might otherwise have just kind of sped right by. 
right? So there's, there's where <laughs> a tripping point was created for the purpose of changing a shopper behavior in, in a new way that, that needed to be changed for, for the marketer to accomplish its outcome. Yeah, that's, that's um, exactly that. That, that, that. There is that tripping points are kind of are subtle and can be used in subtle ways. That yeah. um, because you know that they create this alert, that they can switch on customer attention. Right. Um, we can use them to um, influence consumers to notice things they might not have otherwise. Exactly as you just expressed. Sure. Uh, but but the, it is a subtle thing because. Too much of a tripping point, and you can literally trip someone in, into the negative frame of mind. So, it, it, again, and, and that's something I just want to emphasize about: you have to do, you have to design improved experiences, and you have to test them. You can't just kind of roll them out and say they're going to work because there are these subtle differences between some of those things, and you can create tripping points which might ultimately drive people away, even though you actually want to kind of grab their attention. Um, I, I could just mention a little example here, Phil, if that would yeah, be helpful. Yeah, no, please do, please do. Um, so, and I think I talked about it at Shopperain, which was this idea that we were doing some work, and we are doing some work at the moment for a, a, a UK lottery company, and they have uh, got an online experience. There's an offline experience where you can buy a lottery ticket, but they have um, put that online, and they felt that their process was uh, not smooth in order to buy the ticket. And indeed we found a whole load of tripping points within the process where people were switching to book, having to go to a different payment engine and there was these delays and, and, and the, all these things were tripping points. Um, and, and clearly we told them about them and, and they fixed a load of them and, and they've made the process much smoother. But what we were able to see with the biometrics was that there was little emotional engagement from the customers in buying the lottery ticket and clearly buying a lottery ticket should be different from buying a train ticket because mm -hmm. there should be something which excites you about it right and therefore encourages you to go back of course. so so we've got this situation where we're now creating and testing a whole bunch of subtle tripping points which are designed to add anticipation and excitement at critical stages within the process without driving people away so they're not at kind of moments when um, people will be upset by them, yeah. but actually are likely to be more excited at the right point just before they buy their ticket, for example. Yeah. And these kind of subtle cues, these tripping points at those moments, will encourage people to come back and indeed to spend more. So it is – there's a science, in, in, as you would expect, in applying the learnings from tripping points in terms of changing experiences going forward, redesigning them testing those redesigns so that you can elicit the kind of behavior that you want from customers um, in terms of at the till, actually in um, the money that you make. Yeah, you know, forgive me if I didn't interpret that example properly, but are you saying in that instance, at least, that you basically substituted a negative tripping point for a positive tripping point? Yeah, pretty much. So, so there were tripping points at moments in the journey which were making it not very smooth and right. therefore getting people to check out of the process. Okay. And having fixed those, you've kind of got what might be described as a sort of a very functional process. Um, very good, but very functional. Mm -hmm. 
but in this, but because it lacked that kind of level of excitement, where the anticipation of potentially winning a multi-million pound prize, yeah, um, there was no reason for you to keep doing it. If you know what I mean, you've done it once; it's fine. But it's as we know, it's the hope that kills us, right? It's the hope that we're going to win lottery that keeps us playing. (laughs) And that excitement needs to be seeded within that journey in order to, in in a subtle way, in order to make people keep coming back. Um, Just as a side point, um, economists say that lotteries are a tax for stupid people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to your point. Hey, we can let that one go. But um, I just thought it was kind of funny. Um, but that's a really interesting idea of kind of taking a negative tripping point and substituting it with a positive tripping point, you know, because when you're talking about fixing it before, you know, it, it sounded more like you want to neutralize the thing. And I suppose in, for many tripping points, that is the goal is to, to neutralize it, to kind of take the, the friction out of, out of the process. But, um, but I like how you can say, okay, well, you don't always have to or, or would want to stop there, um, you know, take it to the next level where this, this becomes a positive tripping point. Absolutely right. I'm just thinking of, as an example, this, what we find in nearly every kind of interaction that we're investigating is that paying for something is nearly always a tripping point yes. to some degree sure. because the whole idea of someone at that point reviewing what they've been through and having to literally put their hand in their pocket and get some money out to pay for it um, is, a tripping point, is a tripping point. So if you can make that part of the process as smooth as possible, literally as smooth as possible, the whole idea of contactless payment and all those kind of things, you can see take those tripping points out of payment, it makes it less likely that that's going to stop people from doing it. Yeah. But there's much other opportunities earlier on in the process where you might want to make people excited. You might want to make people stop and think. Um, and it is about the particular experience that you're trying to uh, to redesign, which will dictate how you do that. Right, right. I, I don't know if you might have any examples of this. You know, one of the challenges... In, in store, at least, as one example, is, you know, what, what I refer to as the wallpaper effect. So you might create a positive tripping point, uh, something that causes shoppers to stop and take notice of something. But after their third exposure, it, it, it loses its, its effect, right? It just becomes part of the background, you know, the, the wallpaper, yeah. if you will. Um, have you, are you aware of any examples where, they were able to create the positive tripping point, get the behavior they were looking for, but design it in such a way that it didn't become wallpaper. Um, th- there are examples that we have used of moving the tripping point. So I guess <clears throat> exactly as you've explained that uh, people are habit, they become habit- habituated to something happening again, a bit like your baby with a, the top hat example right. that having when you see it twice, you kind of go, well, it's not going to make me stop and think anymore because I saw that baby last week. Right. Um, so, but moving the thing on to in a, in a different area can continue to create the tripping point. Mm. Um, but sometimes the tripping point itself may have served its purpose. So in getting people to engage with a particular part of the process to purchase something, um, you you don't need the tripping point after that because people have 
um, habituated to it and therefore become more loyal to you. So it, again, it, it's, it's, it can be quite subtle in terms of how you utilize these things. Yeah, really, really, really good point. Because, you know, as I've thought about this, um, I know it, it, it seems to require, and, and your answer kind of validated it, that, well, you need to somehow, it, it can't be a static thing. It has to be dynamic. Right, it's got to it's got to change over time. You either move it, as you talked about, um, or you use lighting that that maybe changes, you know, color or or intensity, um, or motion, or you know, or something that that makes it so that it's not always the same experience, and um, and and therefore it can successfully be kind of this perpetual tripping point. Um, I don't know if yeah. you wanted to comment on that. Well, indeed, and potentially to use different sensory aspects of that within yes. that, as you've just very um, elegantly described, how smell or sight or sound could be used separately to create the tripping point um, and substituted one for the other. So you're not, you're still tripping people up, if you like, right. but you're doing it in a different way. Exactly, exactly. Um, terrific. So, um so this is great. So, all right. So, if you're a marketer or an inside professional, um, you know, knowing what we just talked about, how how might you put this into practice? What uh, what what might you start doing tomorrow? Well, you can give us a call. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah. Obviously, Phil, that would that would be good. But 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 I think that what we would encourage people to do, and you know, kind of uh, setting setting a marketing myself aside, is this idea that. You need to understand kind of where you are currently. So you need to benchmark your experience as it is. Because I think this is what, I think what, this is really what businesses can learn from science, is this idea that you need to know where your starting point is. Because too often we find people doing things without knowing where they're starting from. And therefore, they don't really know what effect that has had. Mm-hmm. So it's this, if I could encourage someone to do anything, it would be to, to kind of do a biometric customer journey. So using the physiology to understand kind of where you are now as it stands, which enables you to identify where the things might be. And obviously, we we would say it's about tripping points and then to try and make some changes and see how those changes actually affect um, people's behavior. So that you get a practical outcome from understanding kind of where you are at the moment. Yeah, I mean, great point. I guess you're not going to really understand, you know, the impact and affect unless you know where you're starting from, and then you can use that to determine the causes and do the fixing and/or compensation. Yeah, absolutely, and again, without you know overstressing it, I think the mistake that a lot of businesses make is that they make a whole bunch of assumptions right. about where their business is right now, and. Obviously, if you start from the wrong place, any changes you make are unlikely to have an impact on something that you wanted them to have an impact on. <laughs> right, so right, right. Where are we is is the big question, I think. Where are we? And obviously, secondly, where are we trying to get to? So if we know where we are, we can then hypothesize where we're trying to get to and what do we need to do to get there? So I think in that way, science becomes a very practical tool that businesses can apply to help them to achieve the increases in profit, the increases in sales, you know, those, those real commercial KPIs, returns on investment, which is the thing that would justify um, their involvement with us. So, um, so Tim, you're, you're clearly a uh, 
prolific and talented guy. You're a, a skilled <laughs> you. basketball player. You're <laughs> a, uh, a published academic uh, author, and, and you give great uh, conference presentations. If people want to learn more about you and, and you know the work that you're doing or, or, or give you that call, uh, what's the best way for people to reach you? Um, well, I'm, I'm very happy for people to contact me directly via, via email or to go to our website, which is uh, cxlab.co.uk, okay. um, and find out more about what we do and contact us via that way. My personal email is tr at cxlab.co.uk, and I'm happy to um, take people's emails and, and respond to them. Um, and that's probably the, the, the two kind of best ways to get hold of us uh, in, in the short term. That's terrific. Um, so, so thanks for sharing that, and, and I hope folks do reach out because um, I think you've got a lot to offer. But this has been great, Tim. It's, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Uh, it, was, it was terrific to meet you in person, and I'm really glad I did because it was nice to be able to cover uh, quite a spectrum over, uh, over our call today and uh, learning more about physiological and neuroscientific methods and tripping points, both, both of these very practical and very useful. Uh, so thanks so much for being with us today, and stay well. Thanks, Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Um, thanks for your time. Thank of you. Of course. Pleasure's all mine. Take care now. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.